IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to IB Talk, the weekly and global podcast brought to you by Insurance Business. I'm Paul Lucas, the managing editor of Insurance Business, but you know all that already. What you really want to know is who's today's guest. Uh, Well, a lot of people suggest that the UK is the heart of insurance, and there's no doubt that brokers are the vital blood supply that keeps it beating which is why I'm thrilled to welcome a man who represents those brokers from the very top. He's the CEO of the UK's leading broker association, BIBA, which stands for the British Insurance Brokers Association. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Steve White. Steve, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Steve, I, I want to come to you about your role at Bieber shortly, uh, but before that, I'm sure there's a lot of people wondering how someone in a top position like yourself uh, got his start in the industry. Can you tell us how it all began? Yeah, it started almost from birth, to be honest. My father was a Norwich Union inspector, so even as a young child, on a, on a Saturday occasion, he would take me out to see a, a, a customer in the fifth form, lower sixth and upper sixth at school in the summer holidays. I had a, uh, a part-time job with the Norwich Union in what was their um, mansion house branch at Bucklesbury House, just around the corner from Bank Station. So I did that for three summers. The A-level results came in. They were one grade below what I needed to go to do the accountancy course that I had picked out for myself. But by that time, I'd actually quite enjoyed putting on a suit, earning some money and working with adults. So a job came up within... Um, Norwich Union within the uh, fire department at the Fenchurch Street branch, as it was then, and I spent a a very happy year there. Uh, The family were living in North London. They moved down to the Kent coast to Folkestone. I couldn't afford to stay in London on Norwich Union money, so I moved with the family down to Folkestone. I joined the the biggest employer in the town, which was the Orion Insurance Company. I'm sure that many of the listeners to this will remember the name of the Orion Insurance Company. I spent 21 years with the Orion. Uh, Orion were latterly Guardian Royal Exchange owned and when AXA and Guardian Royal Exchange merged there was no need for the Orion so the Orion business was run off and the staff were were let go. So at the start of the year 2000 I joined what the, the fledgling General Insurance Standards Council which turned out to be a, a terrific move both uh, career-wise and from a, a knowledge perspective. Having done nearly three years at the GISC, which, of course, people will remember was the voluntary regulatory body, uh, I got a job with the um, FSA, as it was then, the Financial Services Authority. I did two years there um, before spotting a a piece in one of the the trade papers about the appointment of Eric Eric Galbraith as the Bieber chief exec. And Eric was quoted in the piece amongst the things he wanted to do for Bieber was to get more involved in, in the regulation. And I sat there thinking, well, I've worked with brokers all my life. Orion was a broker-only insurance company. I've worked with brokers all my life. I know inside and out. I've also done, um, at that stage, nearly five years or nearly four years with re- in the regulatory space. So I dropped Eric a note and said, this is what I do. This is what we could do for brokers and regulation. And within a, within a fortnight, I had a job offer. And amusingly, the people I was working with at the FSA at the time said, where did you see that job advertised? We didn't see any job advertised. So you just point out that sometimes you have to look for two plus two rather than wait till you see the number four. And that was a point in history as to how I, how I joined Beaver. I, I joined Beaver to run the compliance function 
um, in March 2004, ahead of regulation becoming mandatory in January two, 2005. And uh, when the, the chief executive position came up um, at the back end of 2012 into early 2013, I put my hand up and said if the business was prepared to promote from within, I'd be interested in the job. And after what was a certainly nothing resembling a coronation, it was a, it was a, a full-blown process. Uh, I was uh, fortunate enough and delighted to, to get, have a chance to lead Bieber and have been leading Bieber since the spring of 2013. Excellent. So just turn the, the clock back a little bit there. So it, it was family ties that brought you into the industry because so many people we talk to say that they, they kind of fell into insurance. So was this actually something that you always wanted? Um, I'm not sure the word wanted was the the right expression it's certainly something that I'd always I'd always considered I mean I wanted to be a professional footballer but I was I, I, I had a left foot and no right foot and, uh, was, that was never going to be a uh, never going to be a uh, anything to be taken <laughs> too seriously like all like all kids at my age we all wanted to be George Best when we were running around in the playground um, yeah insurance was always was always a very realistic option for me um, I hadn't really considered um, when applying for the that accountancy course, I mentioned what I would do with the qualification if I got it. Um, so, the, so the chance to go and work for, as I say, the Norwich Union, the, the business that I was um, quite well aware of, having spent three summers working for them, and my father being a, um, an employee there of, of, of over 25 years. Um, that's, yeah, I suppose you could you, you could say it was was in the blood. Um, I'm probably one of the few people who. You could say elected to come into the insurance industry within my generation, rather than just stumbled into it. Yeah, and, and spending but all the sorry, go on. Sorry, Paul, go on. No, I was going to say spending more than than two decades at, at one company. I mean, that's that's an incredible stint. Uh, weren't you chomping at the bit for a change? Well, interestingly, when I when I was leaving school in what would have been what 1977. Um, I remember an old girlfriend's mother saying to me, you know, get yourself a job in banking or insurance because that's basically a job for life. And I think that's how back in the, the mid-70s it, these things were considered. But clearly um, that is a, a, an old way of looking at, at work. And clearly people want new new experiences and to add to their, their, their skill sets, etc. So, yeah, I suppose 20 years in one place was uh, um, would now be considered unusual. But back then it wasn't. Especially if you were if you were working out of London, if you were if you were living and working in the town, or living sorry, working in the town where you lived, you know, it's not uncommon even now. I think for, for where where you, where you have that luxury to, to to spend a long time with an employer. So, uh, moving forward, then to, to like you said, you were chosen after something of an exhaustive process uh, to become the, the CEO of Bieber. Uh, why do you think that you were given the nod for the hot seat? What made you sort of stand out from the pack? I had a pretty thorough understanding of one of the principal issues that brokers have, which is around the whole regulation piece. Um, I had a profile, and I had a pretty clear plan as to how Bieber could be um, taken to the next level. And that in no way, shape, or form is any criticism of my predecessor. But I, there, there were one or two things that we, I thought we could do a little better, and a couple of things that I thought we could do quite a bit better, and uh, we've implemented plans to, to do that. 
I was fortunate to take on a business at a time when it had undertaken a pretty thorough strategic review, and there were a number of work strands there that were able to be uh, picked up and developed, which has led Bieber to the place where I believe it is today. But t- tell us a little about that. I mean, you, you talked about you know you you had the the chance to to take Bieber to another level. What what sort of uh, advancements has has Bieber made during your time? I think our work on public affairs is um, now a long way down the line from where it was. We used a couple of years ago at conference. Our theme was the go to place. And I recall when I joined Beaver, we had to go knocking on doors down at Westminster to uh, get any sort of traction with uh, politicians and civil servants. But genuinely now, we are a go-to place. We are in regular dialogue with um, a variety of different government departments on a variety of different issues, whether it be um, issues around COVID, whether it be Brexit, whether it be issues around cladding, access to insurance, flooding, e-mobility. There's a whole range of topics now where civil civil servants come on our call. They, they, they recognise that we have access to nearly 2,000 member firms. We have expertise in pretty well every every single line of insurance. If there's anything government wants to know, whether it be what is the consequences of an ash cloud exploding um, up in Scandinavia, to what is the situation regarding uh, terrorism attacks down in Sri Lanka with regards to travel insurance, whether it's regarding motor insurance issues and car sharing as a result of um, increase in petrol prices. There's a whole range of issues that government talk to us about on a regular basis in a way that really wasn't happening 10 years ago. And around the other thing is around communications in that uh, when, whenever we go out and talk to brokers and explain what we do as part of the, the tour of the regions that we now do every autumn, we, we regularly hear brokers saying, I didn't realise you did all that. So the mantra that we've been using internally for a while now is that the communication is only as good as the recipient sees it to be. We may think, we may think it's a super piece of communication, but if, if it's not being received by the recipient, then it, clearly it isn't. So we've, we've really upped our game with regards to communications both both written and on social media and that I think is really helping to explain to brokers all the things that we do for them. And I'm, I'm sure there are some of our listeners outside the UK and, and maybe even from the broker associations in other markets who are you know, wondering how you've been able to establish that sort of relationship and close contact with, with, with the government. Um, how, how did you go about sort of breaking down those barriers? It's not something that happens overnight. It takes time. It takes effort. We've expended a lot of shoe leather in getting ourselves down to Westminster. It's about the quality of the engagement. It's about the access to expertise. It also, from a politician's point of view, insurance brokers are more often than not agents of the customer. So we can bring to the table not only the intermediary perspective, but the customer perspective. And it's that customer perspective that uh, often is um, key in the minds of the civil servants and the politicians. Well, let's, let's focus in on the, the broker market um, as it stands. And there's a lot of people, I, I think, whether it's because of the, the growth of comparison websites or, or just insurers marketing direct to consumers, who think that the end is nigh for the humble broker. I mean, it's been something that's been talked about for probably a decade or more now. Um, I think I know where you'll stand on that particular issue. But, but tell us why you think the broker is, is still relevant in the modern day. 
Well, it seems that every change that come along, the toothsayers say, oh, that's the end of the broking sector. Well, it clearly isn't. Brokers have been around for, for hundreds of hundreds of years. Brokers are entrepreneurial. They, 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 they change, they adapt. What we're seeing still from um, the, the, the public, and I think some of the things that we're going to, the lessons we're going to learn from the COVID experience will amplify this, is that there is a need for expertise. There is a need for advice in the purchase of insurance. Not no two insurance policies are the same are the same as COVID is amplifying, and customers do need to make sure that the policies that they have meet the the needs and the expectations that they have, and that's where brokers can step in and really help. So what are what are sort of the selling points, if you want, for for a broker to to, to get across? Because you know there are a lot of new SMEs, a lot of startups in the market, for example, that that maybe are you know dealing with their insurance needs as a business for the first time. So what are the points that brokers need to stress about what they have to offer? They have to offer advice, expertise, choice. They'll also help the customers identify the risks that they're exposed to. Because a broker's fundamental job is is to identify, um, mitigate, and manage customers' risks. Yeah. So, so do and you think? Broker, sorry, I was going to say. Do you think? Do you no, think? No. no, I was going to say. Do you think that the the role of the broker then now is is to be almost a, a risk advisor as well? I think that I think that is uh, certainly certainly for most classes of business that is a uh, a very relevant role for the broker, a very important role for the broker, certainly in the um, the SME and commercial line space, but, but equally so in, in, in some personal insurances as well. Now, the, the personal insurance market, just on that point, seems to have perhaps moved more away from, from brokers than perhaps um, the commercial lines market. Um, how do brokers you know, stress their relevance within the personal line space. Is that something that, I mean, I, I know I was at a conference about a year ago and uh, one of the discussion points was that actually around 25% of brokers' business does still come through personal lines. So how can brokers appeal to the, the personal customer? Certainly in terms of the choice that they offer, the expertise that they offer, um, the value that the, the broker can bring at the time of a claim, there's plenty, plenty of uh, examples where brokers help at the point of a claim. Getting access to insurance, um, there are there are plenty of uh, risk types where uh, you, you put your details into a price comparison site and it can't help you. Comparison sites are great for um, giving solutions for you know, for square pegs in square holes, but if you're an oblong shape, you don't fit. And that's and that that is another area where brokers can really add and really do add their expertise. And I think most people who purchase insurance, you know, they they probably put it on the back burner, except for you know times when they're making claims or when they are renewing the policy. How often should brokers be in touch with their clients? Is it is it simply a case of checking in with them at those times, or you know, do, does the the contact need to be more frequent than that? I think. I think the answer varies depending upon the style of brokers that you run and the sort of customers that you're dealing with and the sort of products that they have. I mean, if, if, for example, you are a travel insurance broking specialist, only selling travel insurance to your customers, then updating them um, periodically on issues in the travel space is probably be welcomed by your customer. Um, I, the answer is 
probably better addressed by the customers themselves. How often do they want to be contacted and what do they want to be contacted about? So, so yes, so Steve, so what do you see as the, the key challenges right now for, for brokers in the market? Um, obviously, we're seeing things like, you know, cyber come to the fore as, as a potential product line for, for them to sell. Um, you know, technology has obviously um, sort of moved into the spotlight a lot more, particularly in recent times. Um, you know, other key um, areas that the brokers should be focusing their business on and, and are there key challenges that they should be thinking about? Well, I think the um, the COVID episode is a, is, a, is a really interesting one because um, looking back, there was very little interest in customers um, regarding COVID. I've seen a, um, a risk management survey produced by the Aon Inpoint business. It's their 2019 Global Risk Management Survey if your readers want to go and track it down. In that, they asked global risk managers what risks keep you awake at night. And I'm paraphrasing a little in saying that. Um, a whole load of risks were, were were listed by the risk managers. And down in 60th place, that's 6-0, was pandemics. And this was a survey that came out in November 2019. So we've, we've seen the, um, the noise around... Uh, the availability or otherwise of pandemic cover. Um, that's a, a risk that wasn't really on people's radars. You now extrapolate that forward and look at the buying habits of SMEs when it comes to risks like terrorism, when it comes to risks like cyber, where, and I think I'm getting these figures right, take up of cyber insurance is around 11%, take up of terrorism is around 12%. So they've... they've we're back into that discussion, aren't we, around brokers helping customers to identify the risks that they're exposed to and then setting out what some of the uh, insurance options may be to, to mitigate those risks. And clearly that's something that's going to be um, an issue going forward. We've seen in, in the recent past issues around non-damage business interruption. So, for example, when we had that appalling uh, terrorist incident in London's borough market, the the, uh, the restaurants and pubs, etc., around the market were, were closed, roped off for two weeks, which means they couldn't trade. Well, there was no physical damage, and insurance business interruption cover tends to revolve around damage to the, the, the property first, and then the consequential losses thereafter. But if the property is damaged, then the cover doesn't kick in. And that's a matter that we took forward with um, the politicians around um, Pool Re, which is the, the government's terrorism back pool, where the legislation underpinning that spoke of pr property damage. We've managed to get that changed to include non-damage business interruption. So the insurance market is responding to the way in which some of these risks change, and brokers are at the forefront of that. It was brokers that came to us and said, can you please um, intervene here and try and get the legislation changed? So it just shows you that brokers are pushing the boundaries when it comes to identifying risks and then coming up with the solutions to help. And you touched there, obviously, on, on terrorism insurance. Uh, you mentioned, you know, cyber as well. Do you think there's a need now for brokers to sort of market themselves as, as specialists within certain areas of commercial lines, as opposed to perhaps being the jack of all trades who covers everything? Well, brokers have tended to, if they do specialise in the commercial areas, specialise on trades rather than covers 
because obviously if you are in a certain trade, you're going to need a broad range of covers. Um, but certainly we're seeing more and more interest in things like cyber cover. Um, certainly the, the guides that we have put out and the webinars that we have run on the subject are getting more and more um, take up an interest in them. So I think this is, this is a matter now that's getting much more attention from brokers. I think maybe two or three years ago, some brokers were, may have shied away from the, the subject. Brokers like to be experts to their customers. And if they don't thoroughly understand a the subject, they may not be inclined to deal with it. Well, I think now that's completely changed and brokers are now very much on top of the subject. And, and as we look at, uh, you know, just to, to give our listeners some insight, so we're, we're recording this a, a few weeks ahead of, uh, of publication, um, and right now we are sort of in the midst of, of the coronavirus. The, you know, there's still a lot of lockdown restrictions in place, certainly here in the UK and indeed throughout most of the world. Um, but as we look at a sort of post-coronavirus world, if you want, do you think that brokers will be sort of more relevant? Are they going to face more of an uphill battle? Um, how do you think that brokers might have to change their business um, sort of post-COVID? I think it creates challenges and it certainly creates opportunities. What we've seen from some of these uh, small SME cases where cover has been denied is that uh, a good number of those have been dealing directly with the insurer. So I think the, uh, one of the issues that that highlights is the need for advice. I think there's a, a, a message that needs to be given to the business community in that insurance is a legal contract uh, and as, as such it would be in your interest to read it and to try and understand it. Uh, you certainly wouldn't enter into a lease on the premises that you trade out of without reading the lease and having a, a general understanding that you're complying with the terms of your lease. Well, insurance by the same token is a legal contract and there is a... An, a degree of onus upon you to read it and understand it and make sure that it does what you want it to do. Now, clearly, your broker will be a great help in that process. But you, you, sh you shouldn't abdicate all of that responsibility over to your, to your broker. Yeah, I think there's there's already been some talk, obviously, about you know legal issues surrounding business interruption in particular. Um, I know there's been a few lawsuits filed in the US. There's been a couple of campaign groups set up in in the UK and elsewhere. Um, do you think that the brokers could find themselves in a, in a difficult position here? Do you think there's any liability towards the broker in terms of COVID-related claims? It's a very difficult one to give a blanket yes or no answer to. Um, it will depend upon what what was said between broker and customer on almost on a case-by-case -case basis. But if we look at it at a, a more macro level, pandemics is a fundamental risk. It's like war and nuclear explosion. Um, insurance isn't geared up to handle fundamental risks. Insurance is geared up to handle incidents that happen in certain locations at certain times, not to cover situations that happen to everybody at the same time. Um, if you look at policy wordings, which we've um, heard from the regulator, haven't we, that by, the, by their reckoning around 90% of business interruption policies clearly do not give the cover. So there are only a handful of cases where, um, a handful of policies where the cover is deliberately given. And we go back to what we said earlier, Paul, in that uh, evidence suggests that there was no appetite from the buying community for the cover to any great degree. It's number 60 on the risk managers list of um, risks that keep them awake at night. 
Um, that would suggest it wouldn't have been anywhere near the radar of SMEs a year ago. Yeah, no, no I, I completely agree with you. So, I mean, that's, I, I'm conscious we're, we're, we're sort of getting toward, towards our uh, time here on, on the podcast, but I, I want to sort of switch uh, pace with you just for a minute and um, talk about a slightly lighter subject, although, although I guess still in some ways COVID-related because you know there's no escaping the up- upheaval, obviously, this has had on everyone's lives and indeed especially those who've who've been impacted, um, whether they've been you know been sick or, or even losing a loved one. But I think all of the all of us are, are missing those those little things right now, and I know for you probably a, a big loss is is not being able to to get out to to concerts and gigs right now because you're you're a big music fan, is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had uh, tickets to see my favourite country band Midland play in London back in March. That's been put off till December. Next week, I was due to see uh, Jules Holland in Canterbury. That one's been put back for twelve months. And in July, and it hasn't yet been cancelled. I've got a uh, a holiday booked to go to Nashville, and I've got three gigs to see whilst I'm out there in the, the world capital of music. So uh, um, I think that holiday is now looking uh, less and less likely. So um, it sounds like you're, you're leaning towards country music. Is that your sort of area of interest the most? Yes. Uh, I've got into it in the last five or six years. I was fortunate enough to do a US Music Cities holiday tour a couple of years back where we took in uh, Denver, Cleveland, Chicago, uh, St. Louis, Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans, and Atlanta, and um, being able to, to stand in the the Motown studio in, De- in uh, Detroit, for example, was just unbelievable. Um, the you know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in in Cleveland, the Country Music Hall of Fame in in Nashville, and uh, it was it was the country bit that that stuck with me. I've been, I've been a music fan all my life. I saw my first uh, first gig, which was. Elton John when I was 15. I've been, been sort of going to gigs fairly regularly ever since. So uh, um, there's just something about country music is, a, is, a, is about lives that have been lived. Rock and roll music is, a, is, a, is more young people aspirational, whereas country music has got a little bit of life, a little bit of living within it. And uh, there's a lot of songs there that uh, resonate with you as you get uh, on in years, shall we say. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's that's a pretty good boast to say your first gig was was Elton John. I think um, a lot a lot of people normally have something more embarrassing than that. Um, what what, what, <laughs> what what is the uh, what is the greatest gig that you've ever been to? Oh, crumbs! Well, that's uh, that would depend on what day of the week you ask me the question. I'll, I'll give you two or three. I was very fortunate on Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy-five, to be at Hammersmith Odeon watching Queen live. So. At that date, Bohemian Rhapsody was top of the singles chart. A night at the opera was top of the album chart, and the concert was going out live on BBC Two that evening. And I was fortunate enough, as a as a sixteen year old, to be in the audience there having a a great time. Um, and I would say the other one. Uh, whilst I'm a great live music fan and go to gigs, I've only ever done one festival in my life, which was uh, on the Isle of Wight several years ago where uh, Bruce Springsteen, who is the act that I've seen live more than anybody else, was the closing act on the Sunday evening. And my wife and I thought long and hard about, do we go, do we go to a festival? Are we, the fe- are we festival sort of people? And we came away from watching the Springsteen set saying, you know what, I'm so glad we did this, because if we'd have watched this on the telly, we'd have been kicking ourselves for not being there live. And we, we were right, stood right down the very, very front, and uh, there's one song that, 
the Dove Rounds on YouTube, which is his version of um, Twist and Shout. And there's one two-second clip where my wife and I are dead centre of the TV recording of this live bit. And I sit and watch that on YouTube every two or three months just to remind myself what a fantastic way to spend a Sunday evening that was. Brilliant. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to see Springsteen uh, live myself one time as well. He is um, superb, enduring, ageless, I think. Um, can, I, can, I, can I ask whether where you saw him? Uh, I actually saw him in uh, Manchester at the uh, what, what was then known as the MEN Arena, um, so the the main Manchester Arena, which unfortunately was the, yeah. the subject of a bombing a year or so ago. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, so I saw him. Um, he was he was doing a, a series of covers, um, which yeah, it was. But he was he was still excellent even even in that. Uh, but I, I also I also understand, Steve, that you're um, a little bit of a, a music trivia fan. Um, I, I had a, a birdie a, a birdie at uh, Bieber informed me of that. Um, so I'm just wondering while we while we round things up, have you got um, time for a quick two or three questions on to test your music trivia? Yeah, fire away, Paul. Fire away. All right, let's let's see how you do. I feel like there should be a jingle to introduce this, but um, <laughs> let, let, let's go ahead. Uh, all right, question one, Steve. Which Irish rock band released a song in 1976 called The Boys Are Back in Town? Finn uh, Lizzy. Finn Lizzy, yeah, but there we go, straight in. Uh, by the way, anybody who's who's listening to this, um, you know, we are, while it's not a live podcast, we are sort of recording in real time, so Steve does not have time to Google. Um, question two Which band released a version of Video Killed the Radio Star in 1979? And it was that was the original version of the song. That was the bubble. It, it was indeed. Yeah, very good. All right, now I'm really <laughs> now, now I'm really going to test you. What is the opening line to Club Tropicana by Wham? Let me take you to a place where memories are a smiling face, rub shoulders with the stars. Do you know what? That's I think. That close enough. I think we can give you it's. It's. Uh, let me take you to a place where memberships are smiling face. Memberships are smiling face. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that could yeah, be yeah. The, the new slogan for Beaver as well. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I'll, I will suggest that to the birdie who tipped you up about pop quizzes. <laughs> Steve, um, um, excellent, excellent job on the, on the trivia. Um, if anybody wants to test uh, your pop knowledge or, or just reach out to you in general on your broker knowledge, um, how could they reach you? Uh, email ceo of bieber.org.uk and I'd be delighted to hear from anybody. Superb. Um, everybody, we're all out of time. Steve, thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody. This was IB Talk. I'm Paul Lucas and we'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of IB Talk. Follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts for the latest episodes.